Welcome to a mini-series of Neurosalience, featuring interviews with some of this year's annual meeting's keynote speakers. Welcome to the OHBM 2023 keynote series as part of the Communications Committee. My name is Joanna Bayer and I'm here with Dr. Andreas Horn, um, who will deliver one of the keynotes at the upcoming annual meeting in July 2023. And I'm very glad to have a few minutes to chat with you, Dr. Horn. Um, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview. Um, and welcome to you as well. Thank you so much for the interview. And it's, it's very great that you do this. And uh, thanks for taking your time and the interest. Thank you. Great. Um, so let's just start with the first question. Um, how would you describe your research to a non-scientific audience from the general public? Yeah, great question. So um, I would say in a nutshell, what we do is we look at um, neuromodulation sites in the brain, and we often use invasive sites, such as deep brain simulation electrodes that are surgically implanted into the brain. And we look at which networks are activated in um, different patients. These are often patients with Parkinson's disease or other diseases, often movement disorders, sometimes OCD, depression, Alzheimer's disease, so various disorders. We look at the focal time point, the focal points in the anatomy that we modulate, and then um, look at which networks associate with that or connect to these stimulation sites. And then, in a way, we we want to find out which networks were modulated by the patients that did really, really well after surgery, in contrast to the ones where um, they didn't do so well. So, so in a way, we we want to find out the optimal connections to modulate, for example, to treat Parkinson's disease. And we do so across various disorders and um, conditions. Thank you. That's really super interesting. Um, and um, what fascinates you most about your research? And what are the questions you would like to solve with your research, like on the long run? I find it super interesting that we can use neuroimaging, um, often using the MRI, of course, um, and, and CT imaging to um, look at these things that will often have very direct impact onto clinical practice. So I think that's quite unique in this field where, you know, it's sometimes just subtle things we find. For example, we should place the electrode slightly more laterally or slightly more to the front of the, the brain structure we're modulating. But since, you know, we, we will refine these targets, for example, but that might really have a direct impact on patients' lives, more or less with sometimes with single studies, depending on the question and depending of course the sample size and so on usually has to be replicated and so on. But but I, I, I find it so fascinating that in contrast to many other, you know, neuroimaging um, domains, there is a more or less direct translational um, trajectory to clinical practice, which which is unique, I think, really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's really applied. That's really great. You can see the direct impact, by the way. So it's very exciting to see that individual um, structural and functional connectivity profiles can be used to predict the outcome of deep brain stimulation in Parkinson's and beyond. Um, and you've already said, like, it, it kind of alluded to that, how can those findings be used in a clinical context and what can be done in cases where the prediction might not favor the patient? Yeah, so, so great question. I think these findings, you know, which networks are optimal to modu modulate for Parkinson's disease, for example, are, are have a scientific value just to understand the disease better, right? That's not really clinically uh, relevant, um, but but then also to really find the optimal network and then target that network, right? So one trajectory is to identify the network based on deep brain simulation sites and then to non-invasively target the network from outside. We 
using, for example, TMS or TDCS. We've just done that with in a study that's not published yet, but with TDCS, where it's a deep brain simulation informed network that we then um, modulate with network-based transcranial direct simulation and showing an effect on clinical motor symptoms as well in a double-blinded um, design. So, so, so that in itself is already, you know, a, a great translation where we can use the network information to um, to to modulate uh, the same network elsewise. I think there are different examples also by Shan Siddiqui and Mike Fox and depression doing the same thing. You know, deep brain simulation network and then TMS. Um, and I, I think also in itself in deep brain simulation we can of course use this network inf- information to find the same network in new patients before surgery by, for example, using DTI or fMRI to, to analyze it in a patient-specific manner and then define the exact same like spot where to put the electrode and which network to modulate. That is not yet being done because the barrier, you know, it, it is invasive um, neuromodulation and, and so on. Um, although maybe with some exceptions, so there are some, you know, more anatomical networks such as the dentato thalamic tract that can be targeted directly with deep uh, brain simulation. So I think I think for the future it would be really the avenue where we can refine um, you know a, a network targeting approach and maybe one anecdote we could show for example in tremor that um, hand tremor versus head tremor would um, maximally respond to modulating the hand region of M1 versus um, more axial regions of M1. So we could also use it to refine the exact body part and find the optimal simulation site for that symptom uh, going forward. Um, but again, a lot is so far retrospective data, often validated by multiple cohorts, right? Um, but you know what's lacking is really prospective clinical trials to apply this further. So one target that has been historically and extensively um, used for DBS is the fornics, in particular in Alzheimer's disease. And one of your latest papers in Nature Communication actually investigates deeper into the me- mechanism underlying fornics DBS. So could you maybe summarize what the highlights of this paper were? Yeah, thanks for the question. So I, I must say that that um, big kudos on this main body of work goes to Andres Lozano, who I think um, also held the Talayric lecture last year at OHBM and showed some of the the results already that were preliminary at the time. So so um, he pioneered this um, this approach to target the fornix for Alzheimer's disease. Um, I can probably personally share that I was a bit doubtful, as probably himself and, and others as well, you know, how large are the effects and so on, um, before looking at the data myself. But then um, we, we could show a clear effect between where we modulated and then the impetus cog um, improvement, so the improvement of the cognitive symptoms um, after uh, two years of um, a deep brain simulation. So, so there is... There, there was a clear dependency of where we modulated and then the outcome. That to me is maybe not proof, but a clear hint that there is something, you know, that the, the, let's say the simulation sites were not randomly distributed. It was not noise. It was really a clear thing. You modulate here, you get better. You modulate here, you didn't. And that was so robust that we could do, you know, cross validation, seven fold cross validations, five fold, 10 fold, and so on. It was always remained, you know, um, significant. Um, and we could show that in a, in a local level and also a track level. And I want to highlight this was amazing work by Ana Rios Infante, who is the um, first author of the study. And uh, she was actually a master's student when she started this. So um, it, it's it's a really nice success story, I think, on that end as well. Have functional or structural connectivity profiles shown better predictions um, for DBS outcomes 
and why do we think that is the case? Great question. So, so in fact, I can probably say that there is this ongoing informal um, uh, challenge between Mike Fox and I of which is better. Mike Fox is a bit more favoring a functional MRI. I'm a bit more favoring structural MRI. But, you know, we're, of course, great friends, and, and I think um, we both agree both are valuable. So um, it's more a historical uh, thing. We, we, when we started together, um, I, I brought in the tracts, and um, he's, of course, more an fMRI person. Mm -hmm. I think fMRI has great advantage that it shows indirect connections as well. We have coverage across the whole brain always, right? So we always have a, a value at each pixel if you, we use resting state MRI, so that has practical advantages, statistical advantages. Tracts, I would say, are better resolved and a bit more direct measures of, you know, we really know what tract is, if it's a true tract, of course, but, um, you know, we can look at the anatomy book, we know it's white matter connections. And so they have, they might have very direct clinical um, value, while fMRI gives us maybe more a statistical global brain um, uh, network uh, estimate. So the hope would be that they have complementary information and using both, we can explain more of the variants and build better models. And I think in the first study we published together, Mike and I, we, we actually showed that. So we could show that, you know, the two things explained different sets of variants and together we could explain more variants. And then the next question would be, should functional or structural connectivity profiles be better derived from large data sets or from small ones that are precisely tailored to the target population? might be like especially relevant like if you have like specific populations like alzheimer's and diseases yeah Parkinson's. yeah great question that hits to home i think we get that asked very much because i, I should i maybe should say that we often use normative um connectomes for our analysis and the question uh, the reason is often that that the patients themselves don't didn't undergo um dti scanning or fmri scanning so we use the side of stimulation and often use a normative connectome um to look at the connections and of course that's indirect people could say hey this is not from the patients this is not disease specific you know parkinsonian brains are different all that is true very much so um but it's still an ongoing question where i feel like first of all there's a lot to learn with normative connectomes still right so we can use larger cohorts um using them then the signal to noise in these data sets are much better. So um, especially patient data of movement disorders, patients yeah. that move in the scanner are not, you know, great. Yeah. So sometimes you, you you get a lot of noise and buy into a lot of noise. And um, if, if you use patient-specific data, um, you can scan patients for 18 hours, you know, to get a great signal to noise. So you have to compromise. So that's that. And then you could even go further. I think there's a great neuron paper um, by the lab of Cameron McIntyre, where they showed, you know, if you manually draw the atlases of, of tracts um, by, by anatomist experts without even using DTI, only then can you really refine these very small tracts that we're often um, interested in, such as the ansa lenticularis, ossiculus lenticularis, and so, so on, you know, from the pallidum to the STN or the com fibers that orthogonally tra traverse the internal capsule. These are the really hard to resolve with DTI, even in, in normative data sets. So my lab has come from maybe patient-specific, gradually realizing, oh, we need better quality, we need more resolution, we need finer tracks, we need better definitions, and then have bought into more the atlas-based approach. But I'm not saying either approach is better. I think future will be a fusion of both. So we want to become patient-specific and um, meticulous in, in the way we define the tracts and networks. So uh, it's it's still, there's a lot to do. And um, 
And I think uh, the answer is probably in the middle. Uh, right now, a lot to learn with normative resources still. So the brain is kind of an, an changing and aging organ. Um, so what impacts do brain aging effects have on the media mediating effects of functional and structural connectivity profiles to predict the outcomes of DBS? That's a great question, and I must say we did not look so much into age, but we we have we have a few studies that we you know we publish that give indirect evidence here. So so um, for example, we could show that if you just look at the definitions of coordinates of the electrodes in 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 aging brains, um, age did play um you know minor effect if it's just about defining ACP co PC coordinates of say M and I space. Um, and and my gut feeling is that um, there, so especially in, in, in very elderly populations, age will play a role. But for example, what is much more important in, is in Alzheimer's disease, for example, the atrophy of of mm -hmm. the um, disease itself, right? Or sometimes also in Parkinson's disease. So I would say that disease specificity is probably more important than age itself. Mm -hmm. um, and we have, you know, spent the last ten years exactly looking at how to best register brains from different populations to each other. Um, of course, use nonlinear non warping techniques, but but also um, come up with manually refined manual refinement tools where we can really manually, you know, um, as in Photoshop in a way, uh, refine the, the fits between brains because it is so important in our field. It's really about the millimeters. So we have a um, technique developed by Simon Oxenford, who is a bright PhD student in the lab called Warp Drive, where we can really refine the overlaps between STNs or, or b between these nuclei in the brain. Um, and we we do so very carefully and we then focus on this very specific region in the brain and that needs to fit. So so I would say even in atrophied brains, and we could show that in the Alzheimer's page uh, paper that without this technique, we would not see anything. We would not be able with novel, you know, registration techniques to, to overlap the images well enough. But with these manual refinement um, techniques, we could. So, yeah, uh, it's not exactly the answer you were hoping for, I think, but but it goes in that to that direction. I would say the disease specificity is probably more important than age. Yeah, it's yeah. it's like the question is more born out, out of the fact that I've been doing like a lot of brain aging things. <laughs> that was the, that was sent. That. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, yeah, cool. Um, and then the next question would be the beneficial effects of DBS in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are well established. Um, but in the outline of your talk, you also mention other conditions such as depression or OCD, so obsessive compulsive disorder. And um, what are the findings there, and which networks are involved? Yeah, thank you. So, so I, I must indeed. I think the question, third work, was more correct. So in Parkinson's, it is really established. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It's very investigational there. So I, I wanted to um, emphasize that because it, yeah, it, it might be even one of the newest indications to. Um, to do uh, deep brain stimulation, Alzheimer's disease, and Parkinson's disease, we've been doing successfully since the 90s, so very established, FDA-approved, um, CE-certified, and so on. Um, so you mentioned uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, where I can say there is actually also a um, humanitarian device exemption from the FDA, and there used to be one from the European Union as well until this year. It was not renewed for political reasons, not for, you know, actual scientific reasons. Um, so so there we can say it is on the way to establishment. So we um, uh, we, we find good good effects in, in OCD on in, in many patients, not in all of them. Um, we have published a paper in 2022 because you also looked at um, 
uh, at findings so in 2020, um, where we could demonstrate that across targets, specific fiber bundle seems to be responsive um, to OCD uh, um, effects. And um, that was true in different targets that we, we hit with electrodes. One was the STN region again, the other one was the anterior limb of the internal castle and the nucleus accumbens. That finding has been replicated, I think, five times now by different groups. Um, and it, it seems to be really robust. Again, a clear signal. If we hit this bundle, OCD gets better. We're now looking at specific sub-symptoms. So, you know, obsessions, um, compulsions, anxiety, depression, and so on. So to further understand which exact connection might mediate each symptom. But I think in itself, for at least the average OCD patient, that's that's one issue here, the heterogeneity of patients, we, we, we do see um, good effects. And then for depression, Helen Mayberg has pioneered the field and then also Volker Kuhnen in Germany with a different target. Um, and I would say, uh, especially Helen Mayberg's target has has now been um, not established, but you know there's, there's good evidence and you know, there are bigger studies uh, running there's a study here in the US um, uh, planned, uh, and and then also uh, one one in Europe and on the other target. Um, I think ongoing, where at least it's very promising um, that we might find um, an effective target for for depression. So I would say, uh, you know, in some patients the effects are amazing, and um, sometimes if the battery depletes, as Helen Mayberg would say, the patients rush into the OR and with you know acute depression in a way or, or mood effects um, to get it replaced, which is a good placebo control, right? You you um you don't know that, that the battery get uh, depletes, and so I think in, in individual patients, absolutely clear effects. But then um, two of the bigger trials had failed, so it's you know it's a bit mixed, and we are we're currently I think in this phase of. Um, getting back to speed with depression, um, TBS. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I've worked with depression, and it's also it's super heterogeneous. So I like uh, the diagnosis alone is super yes. heterogeneous. So it's really really difficult. I think, yeah. I think patient selection is is really important. So that's why you know that makes it a bit more complicated to roll this out once it's established to to more centers. It, I think there are even people that would say that um, it works if Helen Myberg uh, selects the patient, right? Because <laughs> she has so much experience, and then. But transferring that to yeah. to 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 other um, centers is, is, I think, is tough. Yeah. Assuming funding was not an issue, which direction would your um, research take in the next five years, and what areas uh, would you and your team like to explore? Yeah, great question. The what's the dream, right? To do, I, I think um, I'm already at a center where we can do what I really want to do, which is Mike Fox's Center for Brain Circuits Therapeutics here at Harvard at Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital, where. Um, the idea really is to translate into clinical practice, right? So that's probably the simple answer. What I would do would really to translate it and accelerate this um, uh, translation, maybe leapfrog a bit and, um, uh, you know, go go faster into patients because that, of course, is costly, right? You need um, clinical trials and so on and, um, you know, personnel to to run the, the trials and everything. So, but I think there's so much promising um effort there where where we're really beginning to personalize deep brain stimulation based on the connectome, you know, in a way that we, we think of disease and not disease-specific networks, but symptom-specific networks. In Parkinson's, for example, we're about to publish one paper that segregates tremor versus bradycnesia, rigidity, and axial symptoms that, you know, we can all hit with one electrode, but we could much more deliberately target each 
bundle based on um, uh, a specific contact of the electrode. So I, I really think um, we can personalize it in, in patients that have a lot of this symptom, they would get slightly different treatment and so on. So um, that is clearly one thing to accelerate the pace of um, translation and bringing things into patients further. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Like, yeah, there's a lot of like effort to um, personalize things like, I don't know, precision medicine or like also fingerprinting. I think it's really, that would be great. Yeah. Do you have any activities that go beyond scientific work, such as science, communication or related activities? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So in fact, I do um, run a small hobby project in form of a podcast um, where I uh, interview um, experts in the field of brain simulation. It's called Stimulating Brains. It's uh, free. You can uh, check it out. And um, it, it's been a, a great pleasure to be able to do that. For me, it's an excuse to just to um, interview experts in the field and uh, they then reserve time to talk to me, which maybe they wouldn't if, if I wouldn't have a podcast. So, so that's the main excuse to do that. Um, and uh, I've learned so much in that process. I think it has 30 episodes or something. And, um, you know, uh, famous people in the field of big brain simulation have participated as, as guests. And um, I've learned a lot with that. And I, I hope to contribute a bit to also science communication and, um, you know, broadening the impact of, of neuromodulation um, across the broader public as well. I guess the the community would be really interested because there's also the Neuroscience podcast and like, yeah. Um, I love I love that, by the way. Big yeah. shout out to Peter Bendicini. So yeah. I, I listen to most episodes. I think that's a, it's a really great podcast. Yeah. yeah, that's really great. Yeah, cool, cool. Thanks for mentioning that. And then the last, last, questions, um, last question is, what are you looking forward to in Montreal at OHBM in 2023? OHVM is my conference, really. I really much enjoy um, connecting again with um, colleagues. It's also this year that a lot of people are coming. I, I still run a lab in Berlin and Boston, so seven people in Berlin and I think a few also in Boston. And then um, we will have a few from Berlin coming over. We have a few from Boston coming over. We might even do a road trip back and forth together and... Um, potentially rent an Airbnb together. I have a baby son that probably will come with my wife. So that would be fun. Scientifically, I would say I'm connecting with colleagues. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to Anastasia Yendiki's tractography um, workshop. She held the keynote also last, last year and is a friend. And I think uh, I read on Twitter that David Momi, who I really like, and Jill Meyer, both uh, colleagues, um, Jill from Berlin and David, I think, is in Canada somewhere now. And um, on whole brain neurophysiology modeling. So I think these will be exciting um, uh, workshops and, and symposia. So, but I haven't yet seen the full program. So I will be, you know, of course, looking very much forward also to the excitement of giving a talk um, in such an audience. Never done that before in front of so many people, I think. Um, so so that will be very exciting and, and then just connecting with colleagues. Um, hopefully meeting you uh, would be great to connect and um, yeah. These, these things so will be fun I'm, I'm sure yes i agree um yeah well thank you very much so very much for this interview it was super super fascinating and uh yeah let's hope to meet at ohpm uh in june july july thanks yeah yeah great looking forward to that yeah thanks <laughs>